All right, church, if you have your Bibles, let's open those up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, please. First Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 17 this morning, and we're going to make our way all the way through the end of chapter 3, which is verse uh, 13. Uh, I will tell you this. When I come to the end of chapter 2, and you notice what time it is, don't freak out. All right? <laughs> uh, this is a front-loaded sermon, so the, the cha- chapter 3 is... Uh, there's not as much going on as there is going on at the tail end of chapter 2. And so we're going to go through chapter 3 really, really fast. And we're going to hit these three or four verses at the end of chapter 2. It's going to take a little longer. And so don't freak out when I say, okay, time for chapter 3. All right, it's not going to be that bad, I promise. Let me open up with a word of prayer, and we will dive into God's Word together. Father, we're grateful that you have spoken to us, that we can trust your Word, and that we can... Uh, put ourselves in the place of some of the people that have uh, gone through things in the Bible and we can see how they have come through it and that you have been faithful to them in all things, just like you have at the church at Thessalonica. And I pray that we would be mindful today of the condition of our hearts and that we have often made decisions that go against your word and that today we would uh, see it, and we would hear it, and we would change our lives to accommodate it. Lord, we love you. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. So last week, we looked at verses 1 to 16. And in verses 1 to 16, the Apostle Paul made an appeal to the young church in Thessalonica in hopes that they would remember the nature of his ministry efforts while he was there. We're talking, this is written probably about two to three years after he was there. And he's hoping that they would remember what was done on their behalf while uh, Paul and the, the missionary team that was with him uh, was there. He affirmed his love for the church uh, that he has yearned for for the last several years since the uh, time that he was there. And the reason why he points out the efforts that he made on their behalf is because Paul was concerned that people had distorted his reputation as he had to make a hasty getaway from that place because he was facing persecution. Uh, you know, they left during the night to avoid being captured uh, by the Jews who had riled up the Gentiles, saying that you know, there's someone here that's leading people away from Caesar as king. And so they, to avoid capture and to avoid making Jason and his uh, other the other people in Jason's family, in order to avoid having them to pay the security bond for any other damages that come about, uh, Paul left in the middle of the night. And Paul's concern is that there would be religious charlatans that come through and they say, hey, if you give me money, all these good things will happen. And when people give them their money and nothing happens and they run away so that they don't get in trouble, he's afraid that there's going to be a correlation there and that people will think, well, he ran off just like they did. Nothing he said was true. And so he's worried about his reputation, not because he cares about what people think of him, but he's worried that his reputation might affect the gospel. And so he's writing and saying, hey, uh, do you remember what you experienced while I was there? Remember what you saw, remember what we did, uh, 
Paul and his team asked for nothing while they were there. He says, we worked day and night in order to provide for ourselves and to give you the gospel. And so, you know, we didn't ask you for any money. We didn't ask you for any food. We provided for ourselves. Remember that when people are saying that he was just in it for the money or he was just in it for to gain something. Um, he, he implores for the believers to remember how they were treated while they were there. Paul and his team, they not only shared the gospel with them, it's, he said in chapter 2 earlier that they shared their lives. You know, they, they laughed together, they cried together, they had fellowship together, they dined together, they enjoyed one another's company. It wasn't just a business transaction. It wasn't just them preaching and then they go home you know, shut the garage door and never speak to each other again. They were living life together. And he said, remember how much we care for you. Remember that we tried to put no burden on you and remember that we loved you. And there was this deep connection with these people that occurred in a relatively quick amount of time. When we read in the book of Acts, the time that he spent there was only about three weeks. But in that three weeks, there was an affection that was developed uh, that... Has, Paul has not been able to shake since his time fleeing for his life to get away from those that would want to push him and this church out of Thessalonica. Uh, and as he left, he's worried that they've not been adequately prepared for the difficulties that are, they're going to face from the people of their city. Right? They're, they're still, while Paul and his team have left, there's still Jews and Gentiles that are both contentious against the gospel. They're contentious against the church. They want all of that driven out of their community. And Paul has been a believer for a long time. And I, and I really do believe that Paul himself was built of tougher stuff. I mean, the man was a beast. And he, he was, you know, to get hit with a bunch of rocks until the point of almost being dead and then to get up and shake that off and go back into the city that they just drug you out of and hit you with rocks, uh, that's a different kind of person. And so Paul... He sees these, these young believers and he's concerned that they're not adequately prepared for everything that's going to be thrown at them. All the persecution, all the spiritual warfare. Uh, Paul understands, hey, the world is hostile to the faith. And, you know, they're going to come after you. And we told you that they were going to come after you. But there's a difference between being told something's going to happen and then experiencing that thing uh, in real time, in real life. And so Paul is concerned that the believers in Thessalonica are going to fold under the pressures that the world is bringing against them. And that's all he's thinking about as he's spending this time separated from them. He, he tells them, you know, I've longed for you. I've longed to be back in your presence. I want to be there to strengthen you, to prepare you more for all that the world may bring. Um, because sometimes when we are young in our faith, we don't understand the value of, of the Christian life. Right? We, we, we might sprout up in the faith and then the, the difficulties of life start strangling that out like the parable of the sower explains to us. Right? The parable of the sower, the, the seed goes in the rocks and it springs up a little thing of faith and then the, the world is hot and it's hard and it's dangerous and all of a sudden it shrivels up that faith that was so quickly uh, sprouted up. Um, and so he's concerned that they're going to fold. He's concerned that they're not going to see this value, uh, that the idea of sacrificing in this life uh, for the treasures in heaven, he may, they, he's afraid that they may not see that, the value in that at this point, right? Because we don't naturally lean into difficulties, right? We spend most of our time trying to get away from anything that's hard for us. And uh, like that's part of our sin nature, 
You know, the way that we look at the world, and he's concerned that the way that the Thessalonians would look at the world. Uh, did it, you, you guys ever see Willy Wonka, Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory? Do y'all remember uh, Veruca Salt, right? the spoiled little girl who, who said literally, I want the world, I want the whole world, I want to lock it all up in my pocket, it's my bar of chocolate, give it to me now. Right? That's how we look at life. I want the world, the whole world. Give it to me, let me lock it up, I want it now. Right? And it really takes the, the continuous work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to mature us into the image of Christ who, who was willing to give up everything. So it takes time for this to become the, the reality of our mind where we think the way that Christ thought. Right? Christ gave up heavenly glory. He gave up His godly nature. He gave up His immortality. Uh, for, and much, much more. And He did all of that so that He could lay down His life for us, go before God the Father, and take all of the wrath that we deserve. He was willing to give up everything so that He could do that for us. And Paul is concerned that the Thessalonian church doesn't understand all of that yet. He, he's concerned that the church in Thessalonica wasn't prepared for what they were facing. So he desperately wants to get back to them and help them because he loves them. But there's a big problem as Paul tries to make this happen. Uh, Paul had major opposition that kept him from being able to return to the church to help the people that he loved so much. We're going to see that here at the end of uh, chapter 2. And like I said, we're going to spend a good bit of time here. So just settle in. And don't worry when I say chapter 3. It's going to go real fast from that point forward. Uh, so follow along with me as I read verses 17 to 20. Tell end of First uh, Thessalonians chapter 2. It says there, But as for us, brothers and sisters, after we were forced to leave you for a short time, in person, not in heart, we greatly desired and made every effort to return and see you face to face. So we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and time again, but Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of boasting in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So in these verses, we learn that Paul and his team have tried everything that they can in order to get back to these people so that they could better disciple them in the Christian faith. His heart longed to be with them, but he couldn't physically get there because it says they were hindered in their efforts by Satan. Now, we're, we're not told what that effort looks like. We're not told what that hindrance looks like. But here, uh, Paul reminds the church that we have a very real enemy that opposes God and His kingdom. And I want to speak about that enemy for just a little while this morning. right? Because a lot of times people want to uh, philosophize the notion of Satan. They want to act as though um, the devil is more of a concept than a person. Right? It's just, it's just the bad in the world. It's not that there's an actual uh, accuser. There's not an actual person out there that's in opposition to God. This is just an idea. Uh, and we, we see in Scripture uh, that there is so much more to the devil than the idea of this being a concept. Right? The Bible tells us that Satan is real. The Bible tells us that Satan is powerful and that he opposes God and everything that God loves. Satan didn't start off as Satan. We see in Scripture when he was first created that he was an angelic being 
that went by the title of Morning Star or Son of the Dawn, as can be seen in Isaiah 14, 12. Right? The Hebrew word that's used here is Hallel. Right? It's the Latin translation of this word where we uh, turn morning star into Lucifer. Lucifer means light bearer. And so when they translated it from Hallel to Latin, it became Lucifer. We see in Ezekiel 28, 12-17, that Lucifer was created as an anointed guardian cherub. So as an anointed guardian angel. Right? He was created perfect and blameless until wickedness grew in him. Right? He was full of violence and pride because he was beautiful. And in Isaiah 14, 12-15, we're going to see that he grew to believe he was worthy of worship instead of God. I want to read to you Ezekiel 28, 12-17. Follow along with me. Uh, you can turn there if you like. Um, but I want you to hear what God says about Lucifer in these verses says, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every kind of precious stone covered you. Carnelian, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, uh, lapis lazuli, turquoise, and emerald. Your mountings and settings were crafted in gold. They were prepared on the day you were created. You were an anointed cherub, guardian cherub, and I had appointed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked among the fiery stones. From the day you were created, you were blameless in your ways until wickedness was found in you. Through the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I expelled you in disgrace from the mountain of God and banished you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud because of your beauty. For the sake of your splendor, you corrupted your wisdom. So I threw you to the ground. I made you a spectacle before kings. And then in Isaiah 14, 12-15, it says this, Shining morning star, which is where we get Lucifer from. How have you fallen from the heavens? You destroyer of nations, you have been cut down to the ground. You said yourself, I will ascend to the heavens. I will set up my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the God's assembly in the remotest parts of the north. I will ascend above the highest clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you will be brought down to Sheol into the deepest regions of the pit. Because of his rebellion, God cast Lucifer out of heaven along with other angels that for some reason were sympathetic to his efforts at overthrowing God. And for whatever reason, Lucifer then becomes the ruler of this world. He becomes uh, what Paul will call the prince of the power of the air. Uh, we see these titles, the ruler of this world and the prince of the power of the air. It comes from John chapter 12, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, Ephesians 2. We see all these titles for Satan, the devil, or Lucifer. And since being thrown out of heaven, Lucifer has been wreaking havoc on God's creation. Right? Revelation 12.10 says that Satan is an accuser. He's going to point out all the things that you do wrong in hopes that you don't feel like you can turn towards God in all that you've done wrong. In Matthew 4 and 1 Thessalonians 3, it says that he's a tempter. He's going to put things in front of you that make you uh, envious or, or gluttonous or lustful. All these things that he's going to present and he said, God says you can't have this, but you can. All you got to do is take it. It's there for you. All you have to do is take it. Doesn't it look good? Oh, he said not to take it. And if you do take it, then something bad's going to happen. But that's not true. 
That's not true. Just take all these good things. Genesis 3, 2 Corinthians 4, Revelation 20 says he's a deceiver. He's going to lie to you. He's going to tell you that what God has told you is not good. Right? He's holding back. Isn't that what he said to Adam and Eve in the garden? God's not protecting you from anything by keeping you from eating this, the fruit in this tree. He's keeping you from being like him. Because he knows if you eat of it, you will be wise and powerful and just, just like him. Just eat it. And then they did and they are sin enters the world and creation is just crushed. Right? He's a deceiver. He lies. He goes by the name of Satan and the devil when we look through other pages of Scripture. Satan means adversary. Right? The one who opposes. So we have someone who actively is coming against us as the people of God. And Satan is still vying for God's throne as he covets worship. And we see that he, he often offers uh, counterfeit things. Things that kind of look like what God has done, but not really. He puts stuff out there. He has power. And it's kind of counterfeit, of like, sort of like what God offers. Um, but he's coveting worship. What he desires is uh, opposition to God's kingdom. Right, we see this in the temptation that Jesus had in the desert in the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 4. Uh, the last offer that Satan presents to Jesus is the whole world and all of its splendor. I'll give you the world. Right, this is mine. I'll give it to you. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. Jesus knows that God is the only one worthy of worship. And he combats this lie with Scripture. Jesus refuses and Satan goes away. Right? Satan is a very powerful being. He veils the eyes of non-believers. Right? They don't see the truth. They don't know that they're not believers. They don't know that what they're doing is sinful because the God of this world veils their eyes and He pushes them to oppose God at every turn. Do what feels good, not what's righteous. Do what you want, not what's holy. Right? This is what... Paul and his team was up against when they were facing a very direct opposition from this fallen angel. And now you, you may have heard all of that. I don't know what, where you are in your walk with the Lord. Uh, you may be freaking out right now with this idea that there is an active pursuit in the evil places that someone is actively looking out to, to destroy you. Actively looking out to accuse you. Actively looking out to deceive you. Um, because the devil is real and he's powerful and he hates us and God. And that might freak you out. I know we were having some good conversation at our uh, evening Bible study last week. And the idea of demonic possession was coming up. And I mean, some people were afraid to go outside. It gets real dark out here at night. And so we're like, I, I don't want to go to my truck by myself. You know, like we just, you may want to walk with me. Um, but there was some talk, and I want to share that talk with you here, uh, that we don't need to be afraid. Cautious, but not afraid. So here's some things that I want you to remember. Though Satan is powerful, he is not as powerful as God. Right? No matter how much he strives to get people to believe that, uh, we must always remember that this isn't a, a battle with God and Satan striving for authority. Right? A lot of times we, we think about this balance between good and evil and it takes you know, this to get an advantage over this. Like There's no battle here. 
There's no, Satan is not as powerful as God. Satan is a created being. God is the infinite creator. And there's no contest between strength and power here. So don't get that twisted in your mind at all. There's no battle here. Right? The first few chapters of the book of Job shows that Satan can only do what God allows him to do. Right? He, he presents Job and says, hey, do you want to try to tempt Job? Because he's a holy and righteous man. And Satan says he's only holy and righteous because you give him all this stuff and you protect him. And he goes, you can take all that away and he'll still worship me. And as he goes forth, he goes, okay, he goes, but uh, you can't touch the man himself. So the first round of difficulty and hardship that comes through, he loses all of his wealth and he loses his children. And Job says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And we see this interaction between God and Satan again. And he goes, see, I told you, Job is a righteous man and he loves me. He goes, a man will do anything to save his own skin. You take away his health and he will curse you to your face. And he goes, okay, you can take away his health, but don't kill him. And so we see that he is afflicted with boils and he longs for death. And he's scraping himself with broken pottery just to have a little bit of relief. And he doesn't curse God. He does get to the point where he's like, I'd like some answers a little bit further along in the book, but he never curses God. But we see in all of that that Satan is a dog on a leash. He is very powerful, more powerful than you and I, but he is not more powerful than God, and he only can do what God allows him to do. And that brings up a very difficult question. If that's the case, then why does God allow him to do anything at all? Right? And that's not a question that we can answer from Scripture. We're just not given that information. Everything uh, that we can present as a response is speculation from what we see in Scripture. What we know for certain is that God is sovereign, He is powerful, He is good, and we can trust Him. But when we go to God with the why questions, it's just not going to work. Someone once said that us asking why would be like trying to explain the internet to an ant. When God would explain why He did what He did, there's just no chance of us having any comprehension of what He's telling us. And so we can trust, though, that God is sovereign, He is powerful, He is good. We can trust Him and He has a plan for all of this. And we just lean into that whenever life gets crazy or when, the, when we're starting to be under spiritual attack. We can lean into all of that, even though we don't know why God would allow that to happen. And because of these things, the Apostle John says this in 1 John 4, 1 through 6, specifically in verse 4. I'll put emphasis on that as I read it. It says, Dear friends, do you not believe every, uh, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, even now is already in the world. Here's verse 4. You are from God, little children, and you have conquered them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore what they say is from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Anyone who who knows God listens to us. 
Anyone who is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception. The one who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. When we come to saving faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in us, and the Holy Spirit is God, and He is more powerful than Satan. So as a Christian, you can't really get away with this idea of the devil made me do it. No, he didn't. The devil may have presented you with an opportunity to do it, but you chose to do that. The devil can't make you do anything. James says in chapter 4 of his letter, in verses 6 and 7, says there, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 7, therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Right? We don't have power over the devil, but God does. And God resides in us if we are true believers. And we have the ability to resist the devil. The devil, though more powerful than us, not more powerful than the God we serve and the God who has made his home in us. And so we don't need to be afraid. I don't care what exorcist movies you watch on TV. Like We have no reason to be afraid. All right? Paul informs us, uh, that we should be aware that at times we're going to face opposition. We're going to face uh, spiritual warfare. This is why he tells us in uh, Ephesians chapter 6 that we should put on the full armor of God. He acknowledges that the battles that we have in this life, they're not against flesh and blood, but they're against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic power of this darkness, against evil, against spiritual forces in heaven, in the heavens. And so Paul, he's trying to get back to the Thessalonians, but he is actively being opposed by Satan. And he's finding it difficult. All right, then he says something that I found very interesting. He tells the Thessalonian church that they are, that his group's hope, his, their joy, and their crown of boasting in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming. He says that down, I think it's verse 19. Saying that the Thessalonian church is their hope and joy is pretty understandable at this point. I mean, he's made it fairly clear, um, well established in this letter so far, that uh, this church is dear to the heart of Paul. So he, he sees them and he, and he has hope. He sees them and it expresses a great deal of joy. But what does it mean when Paul says that this church is the crown of boasting uh, in the presence of Jesus at his coming? Right? I mean... When Jesus comes, are you, are you going to boast about what you've done? Like that, I, I read that and I said, what? So he's going to boast in these people. Uh, well, here's what we need to remember. This presents two realities that we need to take into consideration as we go through our lives. The first reality is that Christ is going to return. All right, so here we see uh, Paul assuming that Jesus is coming back. Right at the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus ascends back to the right hand of God the Father. There he awaits the moment when it is time for him to return to this world. And then he's going to be that conquering Messiah that the Jewish people, they've been waiting for him for, a, for many millennia at this point. The Jewish people were waiting for a conquering Messiah. And Jesus came to conquer, but he came to conquer sin and death and to overcome the power of Satan, not the power of Rome. But when this Jesus comes back... He's conquering it all. He will be that conquering Messiah. You know, he's going to be coming back 
white horse tattoo of his name on his thigh with a sword coming out of his mouth. Like, he's not messing around at this point. And so his return, it's promised and spoken of in several places in Scripture. And because we believe the Scripture, uh, is the, we believe that it is actually the breathed out Word of God, we can put our hope in those promises. That's one of the reasons why we went through the book of Matthew when we went through the book of Matthew because it shows all, all these promises that Jesus fulfilled from the Old Testament, right? There's the virgin birth of the Messiah, promised and fulfilled. We see that his birth in Bethlehem was promised and it was fulfilled. The, the cross was promised. If you look at Psalm chapter 22, we see a method of death that was foreign to these people but if you look at Psalm 22 and put that at the execution of Jesus, you'll see an amazing overlap, promised and fulfilled. Right? So if we have all these promises that have already been fulfilled, then we can put our faith in the promise that he's going to return. Right? If we see all, like there's 300 or so prophecies that Jesus it was promised and fulfilled in Christ. And if we can put our trust and hope in those and see the outcome of that, then we can put our trust and hope in the promise He's coming back someday. And we need to live our lives according to that. When, when Christ returns, there's going to be a judgment of the righteous and the unrighteous. Right? And the righteous, they have nothing good in them to win over that judgment on their... Like, we're not turning in our checklist and saying, hey, I went to church this many times, I gave this much money, I served this many times, read my Bible this many times. We're not presenting that before the Lord to get that righteous designation. That's not how this works. The only reason why we're considered righteous is because of the work of Christ on our behalf. Right? Our righteousness is actually His righteousness. And that righteousness is applied to us. Right? So when we go before God and He declares us righteous, it's because He sees the blood of Christ. He sees His life, His righteousness that is given to us because of our faith. Right? The unrighteous stand before Christ based on their own merit, and that does not end well for them. Right? When we stand before God and we present Him the best day of our life, Isaiah says that it's like filthy rags. Right? I mean, to put it into my world, it's like a poopy diaper. Right? That's the best day of our life to present to the Lord. It doesn't go well for them because they stand before Christ on their own merit. But another thing that Scripture says that we do at this judgment is we give an account of our lives. Right? Romans 14, 9-12 says this, Christ died and returned to life for this, that He might be Lord over both the dead and the living. But you, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will give praise to God. Number, verse number 12 says, So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. But this is the other reality that we're seeing is that Paul is going to give an account of his life before the Lord. So even though we are saved by grace through faith, specifically Paul says so that no one can boast about what they're doing in their life, we still have to give an account for the life that we've lived before God. Right, Paul is saying here that the Thessalonian church is going to be a crown with which he can boast before the Lord. Now, 
in, in, in this boasting before the Lord, though, he's not saying that he's the reason why the church is operational and therefore he should get accommodation for that. It's not that type of boast. Right? It's not Paul puffing out his chest and saying, look what I present to you, Lord. Aren't I awesome? That's not what he's saying here. Right? He's not pointing out how awesome he is. He's, not, he's, he's pointing out how awesome they are. Right? He's saying he's proud of these people. Lord, look at this. These people came out of chaos. Right? There was no hope for them to come to faith in Christ except for the work of the Holy Spirit and look at them. Isn't it beautiful? Aren't they amazing? He loves these people. He's proud that he was involved in seeing the kingdom grow in Thessalonica. And he's going to point these people out with joy because of their faith in Christ. Aren't they beautiful? Let me ask you this. Are you going to have things like this to boast in the Lord uh, when you give an account of your life? This is an idea that I have tried to consistently push in the time that I've been here. Only what we do for the kingdom of God in this life matters in eternity. That's it. Our treasures in heaven, whatever those are, I've explained. I, don't, I can't fathom what that might be. Right? So there's something other than just spending time with Jesus? I don't get it. Is it more time with Jesus? Because that's what I want. Right? Do I get more face-to-face time with Christ? If I serve, do I get more face-to-face time with Christ if I sacrifice? Then I'm in. Right? I, can't, I can't fathom what else there would be. But our treasures in heaven are not going to be given out because of the bank account that we present to God when we die. Right? It's not going to matter how big our house is. It's not going to matter how much we gave to charity. It's not going to matter how high up we rose in our company or how well we do on the ball field. It's not going to matter how famous we become or whatever your earthly metric of uh, success is. None of that matters. That's not how God measures success. It's what is done for the kingdom of God that we should be boasting in. Right? Not how much we made, but how much we sacrificed. Not how well-known our name is, but how well-known we are for serving the kingdom of God. That is what we boast in. In 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15, Paul warns us about what we use to build on the foundation of the gospel that we've been given. There he says, According to God's grace that was given to me, I have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder, and another builds on it. But each one is to be careful how he builds on it. For no one can lay any foundation other than what has been laid down. The foundation is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And what he's saying here is that one day our work in this world will be tested by fire. And on that day, only the things of importance, only kingdom things are going to stand up to that test. It's the only thing that's going to survive. Now, As is clear from this passage, salvation is not at stake here. That's not what he's talking about. 
It's not because it's not about what you or I have done. Right. Because he talked about that foundation. That foundation doesn't change. It's about what we build up on that foundation. Right. Salvation is all about the finished work of Christ on the cross. Right? There is nothing left for us to do. Nothing that we can do. When Jesus said it is finished on the cross, he meant that. But for those of us who are in Christ, our debt was paid in full. We owe nothing, nothing else. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, the greatest chapter in the Bible. So we, we don't add anything to our salvation by our work, but it is up to us how we build on the foundation of the gospel, that foundation that we have been given. And what we do with our time, our talent, and our treasure will determine what type of treasures in heaven that we get. Again, I can't fathom what that means. Don't know. But there are promises in Scripture that when that this is what happens. Like somehow we gain treasure in heaven when we live a life that is pleasing to God, when we live a life of sacrifice that Christ tells us to take up our cross daily. So we're laying down our life on a daily basis. Whatever that means, it means that there's going to be treasure in heaven because of that. And so what we do not want to present to God at the end of our life is a life of shallow faith. Right? Easy believism. So we do just enough right, in our own mind to just step across the line into salvation and then we never grow. We stay as close to that line. We, we keep asking the wrong question. Right? Is this sin? Can I do this? Is this sin? How about this? Is this sin? And we keep walking back to the line. I want to be... I want to be as close to sin as I can possibly be without falling over. The problem with that is when you ask that question, you eventually fall over. Right? What we need to be doing with our life is saying, is this holy? Is this holy? Is this Christ-like? Does this look like sacrifice? Does this look like Jesus? And we move in that direction and not the other way around. Right? We do not want to toe the line between sin and pleasure. Right? We do not want to live a life that has built up our name in this world rather than building up the name of God. Right? One that has sought all that the world has to offer is, is going to find out that in the, at the end it's all going to be burned up. It's all going to be burned up. Right? Even if they're saved in the end. So in my mind, how I see this playing out is imagine Indiana Jones running for a door and fire is just coming in behind him. Right? He does that Indiana Jones run. He hits the ground, slides under the closing door, his hat falls off, and he reaches back and snatches it before the door shuts. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? And so he stands up, he puts the hat on, and smoke is just billowing off of him. It's that close. Right? He's safe. He's saved. But everything that was behind him is burned up. I mean, can you imagine living a life that was so focused on this world and what this world has to offer that when you present it to the Lord at your judgment and you give an account for that, so there's nothing to show for it. I pray that no one here is living that life. That you are striving to be more and more like Jesus in every step that you are taking, right? There's so much more to be gained and enjoyed in eternity. Why would you trade eternity for things of this world? 
When you get to enjoy that thing that this world has to offer for 50, 60, 70, 80 years. And yet you've got eternity to live. To enjoy the treasures that you've been given. That's a stupid trade. So what are you living for? What are you living for? And that brings us to chapter 3. Right? How am I doing? Everybody ready to tap out? I'm going to go much faster here, okay? Chapter 3 says, Therefore, when we could stand it no longer, we thought it was better to be left alone in Athens, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you concerning your faith so that no one will be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. In fact, when we were with you, we told you in advance that we were going to experience affliction, and as you know, it happened. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I also sent him to find out about your faith, fearing that the tempter had tempted you and that our labor might be for nothing. But now Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news about your faith and love. He reported reported that you always have good memories of us, that you long to see us as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and affliction, we were encouraged about you through your faith. For now we live if you stand firm in the Lord. How can we thank God for you in return for all the joy that we experience before our God because of you as we pray very earnestly night and day to see you face to face and complete what is lacking in your faith? Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and everyone just as we do for you. May he make your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Amen. And so we see here in these 13 verses, when they could take it no longer, Paul sends Timothy to check on and encourage the Thessalonian church. Right? They were so worried about these people for years that he can't take it anymore. He's got to know what's going on. And so he sends Timothy uh, because he, he says, I, I, don't, I didn't want you to be shaken by your afflictions, even though we told you they were coming. Right? So you couldn't say that we didn't tell you that this was going to be hard. Right? He's, not, he's not preaching the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. He's not saying if you just have enough faith, God's going to bless you. He's saying, if you have faith at all, the world is going to oppose you. I told you it was coming, and now I want to make sure that you're not shaken in these afflictions. Right? He, he didn't want to learn that Satan had tempted them away from their faith. Right? Even though he warned, hey, this could happen. Right? When you step into faith, and when you're legitimate about it, right? when you're getting after it, you put a spiritual target on your back and... You know, the, the devil's going to come after you. Maybe not the devil himself, right? You're probably not battling the way Paul did, but you're going to catch some attention. We don't catch that attention when, when we're not doing anything. Like, why would they shake you up? Like, I've never experienced any spiritual battles. I don't know what that's all about. Like, yeah, because you're sleeping. You, they don't want to wake you up. But if you wake up and you actually get after the kingdom of God, you can be sure that you will face spiritual battles. That life will get difficult. It's one of the reasons why I, I preach the fellowship of the church so much because this is how we protect one another. Right? I, all the time, I say, it, can you be a Christian and not go to church? Yes. Yes, you can. 
Can you be an obedient Christian and not go to church? No, you cannot. Can you be a smart Christian and not go to church? No, you cannot. Right? Peter talks about the lion as or the devil as a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And if you've ever watched National Geographic, the lion always eats the one in the back by itself. God has provided us with the church so that we can protect one another, so that we can carry one another's burdens, so that we can pray for each other. And it's not okay for us to wander away from the family of God and to think I'm okay because I've got that foundation of faith. Because if we are not doing things for the kingdom of God with that foundation of faith, everything else is going to get burned up in the end. He, he wants to know that they are strong in their faith. He wants to know that they have not been tempted away from their faith. And Timothy comes back with a wonderful report. He says, the Thessalonian church is standing firm in their faith and love. He says, Paul, you don't need to worry about your reputation among these people. They love you. They adore you. Just as much as you adore them, they adore you. They cannot wait to see you face to face again. As excited as you are, they may be more excited. Right? They cannot wait. They long to see him as well. And now, after this report, all that's left for Paul to consider is how to thank God for this wonderful news. Like, how do I present this before the Lord? Like, I can't fathom with as much uh, exuberance as we see in his love for this church to have Timothy come back. Can you imagine what that, that night of prayer was like for Paul? I mean, he's stoked. Right? He's just trying to figure out how do I put this in such a way that would even do honor to this situation? And he prays at the end, he prays for uh, the church to wrap up the chapter. He asks that the Lord would direct their way back to the church. He wants to go back and see these people. All right? So, Lord, direct our way back there. He asks the Lord um, to increase and overflow their love for each other and everyone else. And he asks that the Lord would continue to make them more like Christ in holiness, blameless hearts before Jesus comes back again. So again, reiterating, Christ is returning and he wants this church to be as holy as they can possibly be before he returns. And this is his prayer. And so this is a similar prayer that I have for you. I pray this for you guys a lot. We've got three application points that I want to talk about before we wrap up this morning. Right, number one, I want you to be aware of our enemy. Like, that's the reason why I took the time. I don't want to assume that everybody in here has an understanding of who the devil is and what he is doing. I don't want you walking out of here today thinking that the devil is a concept. Right, I don't want you to go out of here thinking of the devil as a roaring lion that is looking for opportunities to devour the people of God. Right, be aware of that, and you need to protect yourself from that. You protect yourself from that by, one, reading your Bible. Two, being part of the church. Three, prayer, fervent prayer. You protect yourself from that by showing up to our prayer meetings and actively praying with the church. You, you prepare yourself by realizing that a lot of the stuff that is being presented to you by this world is the devil trying to take your eyes away from the goodness of God, the work of the kingdom. Be aware of that. Right? Yeah. Could you possibly go after this thing, whatever it is? I don't know your life. 
Could you possibly go after this thing that will take up a good deal of your time, a good deal of your talent, a good deal of your resources, and not be sinful? Absolutely. Absolutely. Is that the best use of your time? Is that the best use of your resources? Is that the best use of your talents, though? Right, time is short, and Satan will gladly distract you from something that's not wrong. Right? It's not wrong to work hard. We're supposed to work hard. It's not wrong to make a lot of money. That's fine. But when you start looking at that as your goal instead of building up the kingdom of God, your priorities are in the wrong place. And that's exactly where Satan wants you. Not focused on the end goal of building the kingdom of God. Not in presenting something to boast about to Jesus when it's over. Lord, look at what the Holy Spirit did with my efforts. Look at what I've got to present to you. Now, we boast in that, not in ourselves. But be aware, Satan is looking to distract at all costs and destroy if at all possible. Number two, what will your crown of boasting be before the Lord? Right, I hear so, so often, I, I just don't have time, I don't have time, I don't have time. Oddly enough, you have just as much time as everyone else. Right? When we see these people doing this, this stuff and these people doing that stuff, they have the same amount of time to do it. They've just prioritized different things. So you have the time that God has given you to do the things that he's called you to do. You have the time. Let's at least, at the very least, let's be honest and say that's not my priority. Right? We're not gonna, don't tell me that you don't have time to do the things that God has told you to do. Just be honest with yourself and with me and say, that's just not my priority right now. I'm just not prioritizing that thing. Because that's the truth. Right? Pastor Vadi Bauckham would say, if you can't say amen, you should say ouch. Right? What will your crown of boasting be before the Lord? What are you investing your time, your talent, your treasure in in this world? Lastly, number three, don't let the difficulties of this world choke out your faith. You are guaranteed difficulties in this world. Guaranteed. And you are also guaranteed that Christ will be right there with you through it all. all right, if you continue in the greatest chapter in the Bible, Romans chapter 8, down to the very end, you'll see that there is no affliction that can take you out of the hands of the Lord. Whether that be famine, nakedness, struggle, spiritual warfare, none of that can take you out of God's hands. So when life gets hard, lean into the Lord. When life gets hard, lean into the church. That's why we're here, to support you when you have trouble supporting yourself. To lift you up in prayer, to help you financially, to support you when... The spiritual warfare is raging in your life. That's why we're here. Don't let the difficulties of the world push you away from the church. Don't let it push you away from faith. Like anyone that sold you the bill of goods that this wasn't going to be difficult if you just accept and believe lied to you. Like there's a promise of difficulty. So go into it prepared. Like when this gets hard, say, I'm, I'm diving into the church. When this gets hard, I'm diving into the Lord. I'm like, well, that's it. I'm done. He lied to me. Where? You, you haven't read the Bible if you, found, if you think you were lied to. 
Like you are promised difficulty, but God loves you. He's always there. You are loved beyond measure. I mean, the cross proves that. And that's the greatest gift that we could possibly be given. That alone, if nothing else goes well in our life, the fact that Jesus presents salvation to us and lets us restore our relationship with the Father, that's the best thing that we could ask for. If we have that, we have everything in the world. Do you have that? Is that a choice that you have made? Or is the Holy Spirit talking to you today? Is the Holy Spirit saying, hey, you know, yeah, you, you, you walked the aisle, you said a prayer when you were eight, but maybe that's not a legitimate conversion experience. Maybe the Holy Spirit saying, your life's not really lining up with that proclamation of faith. Maybe today is the day of your salvation. If that is the case, if anybody needs to talk after the service, I'm here. I'm here all afternoon. So if you need me, come by. Okay? Let's pray together. Father, I'm grateful. Mm, so grateful for this word from, from Paul. I pray that we would be mindful that there is a real enemy that is actively pursuing to, to take our eyes off of your kingdom. That's looking to distract, to accuse, to deceive. And I pray that we would realize that and we would take steps to put on the full armor uh, that would protect us from these attacks. Lord, I pray that we would also be mindful that the only thing that's going to survive your judgment at the end is the things that we have done for your kingdom. Help us to push aside all the foolishness of this world. Lord, that's not to say that we don't have fun. We don't enjoy things that aren't necessarily kingdom-oriented. But Lord, help us to make our time, talent, and treasure focused on doing what we can to advance your kingdom. And help us to see fruit of that so that we can be encouraged and continue to do it and continue to lift each other up as well. And Lord, finally I ask that you would help us to remember the truths of the word when difficulties come into our life. Help us to remember that these are promised and that we will, we will guarantee expect these if we are actively working for your kingdom. And help us to be not afraid Help the church come around anyone who is struggling. Lord, I pray that lives would be changed, eyes would be opened, and we would go forth from this place in a spectacular way, showing, you know, seeing the, the darkness in this community, our, our homes, our, our neighborhoods, our schools, whatever it might be, Lord, that we would see the darkness pushed back by the efforts of this church. I ask this in your son's precious name. Amen.